Welcome back to another episode of Ideas Digest. I'm here with co-host Cam. Yes, here again. And this episode is a little bit different. This is the podcast where we aim to take... Nah, we don't aim. We bloody do it. Yeah. <laughs> we're not pumping our own tyres, but we feel like we're doing an all right job. <laughs> we're, we're trying our damn best. <laughs> yeah. uh, if you disagree, email us and yeah. we'll have you on the show. <laughs> yeah. We take controversial ideas. Now... Ideas without context divide us. And the context of an idea is always the person. So we bring people on, talk about the idea, and find out the context, which is them, and how that idea applies. And hopefully... And how they came to it. Yeah, yeah, and how they discovered it. And hopefully by the end of our conversation, it's not about agreeing or disagreeing. Who cares? Yeah. Hopefully you understand how they got there, how the idea serves them, and maybe how they might view you as a person. Yeah. And maybe how you might be able to learn from them too. Like you may not, you know, believe everything, but there may be something that you can learn from the way they view the world. This episode is a little bit different because normally we emphasize do not come to this podcast <laughs> for information. We're yeah. talking to normal people, everyday people that we encounter that have ideas and we're just exploring them to see the lay of the idea land, so to speak. Yeah. But in this episode, Cam and I fanboy a little bit <laughs> yeah. over one of... Because well, he's a he's legit my, professional. <laughs> yeah, he, this guy, he's the first professional we've had on the show, I think. Yeah, he's a, he's a damn doctor, for goodness sake. Yeah, like, yeah he's, he's well he's qualified. He's got a doctorate. So. so, he's probably one of my favourite authors slash internet influencers, because you yeah. can follow his work yeah. online. Yeah. Peter Rollins is his name, Dr. Peter Rollins. Yep, written a stack of books and... Conrad and I have read a lot of them, if not all of them. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're very uh, engaged with his work. And a lot of his work actually inspired this podcast, but we talked to him a little bit about yeah. that. So in this episode is, I mean, it's it's probably above my pay grade, to be honest. Yeah. He, he's a philosopher. You and may he, need to not listen on two times speed. You may need <laughs> yeah. to listen twice. Yeah. Like there's a, there's some stuff in there that, Like, I've heard a lot, if not all of this stuff before, and still when I'm talking to him, I'm like, oh, right. That's what that means. Yeah, it's like (laughs) pennies are still dropping (laughs) after like seven years of listening to this guy or whatever it is. Yeah, when I was editing it back... I realized, man, was I even present for the conversation? (laughs) (laughs) I think I did a good job of looking like I was there. But as I was listening back, I was like, oh, I I must have missed that. Like, you... So I would encourage you to listen to it a couple of times and maybe if you have your phone handy or a computer handy, Google a few terms because he does... Take a few notes. He, yeah. he does um, drop a lot of philosophical language, theological language, and you might, I don't know, it might be a bit discouraging being like, oh, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. But from my experience, I would encourage you to just push through. Stick with it. Yeah. Because you'll you'll end up understanding the concepts even if you miss a, a big word if, yeah, here or there. if you don't get the... Every single word as like you can define that to somebody else who asks you, you will still get the underlying message that he's trying to communicate because he's he's a pretty proficient communicator. So you will pick stuff up. Just stick with it. So if you are interested in philosophy and the view of Christianity specifically through a philosopher's lens, then this one's for you. He brings forward some concepts that are very central to Christianity, like the crucifixion and what that means. And he interprets it very differently, like I said, through more of a philosopher's lens. I found this really interesting. I find this stuff really interesting. I think Cam does as well. Yeah. 
Not everyone will, but that's okay. So yeah. take a listen. Let us know what you think. I'm right and you're wrong. Listen now. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being, to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. Well, welcome everyone on Instagram Live, the few people that have joined us, and welcome back to Ideas Digest, the podcast, but we prefer to call it The Practice. Now, this is the practice of listening to new ideas. You might disagree with them, you might agree with them, that doesn't really matter to us, uh, but we're trying to understand the person behind the ideas, how they came to the conclusion, how the idea helps them. This isn't necessarily a fun practice. Uh, you're listening to an idea you disagree with, quite unpleasant. So we're not an entertaining podcast either. So we can't guarantee any fun, <laughs> uh, any fun to be had. But I'm joined by Cam, my regular co-host. Howdy. <laughs> and joined today via Instagram Live and on the podcast is Dr. Peter Dr. Rollins. Dr. Peter Rollins. Thanks hey for joining there. us. How's it going? It's great to be here. Very pleased to be able to do this. Well, thanks for thanks for linking linking up with us. We'll introduce you as as your official title, Dr. Peter Rollins. But I, I, do you go as philosopher? What's what's on your CV or TikTok account? What? Yeah, what? yeah my tick. My TikTok account is just a dancer. I don't know if that's going to be well. Yeah, so I am yeah, trained as a, I suppose technically I can train as a philosopher is my prime kind of uh, academic background. I've got a PhD in kind of philosoph- in philosophy, but it, it, it touches on psychoanalytic theory and uh, theology as well. But philosophy is my, my main uh, training. Your bread and butter. I wouldn't. I'd never say bread and butter. I don't think I've ever earned money from my philosophy. <laughs> sadly, <laughs> I'll tell you what. You keep. I, I have listened to you a bit. You keep saying like, "Yeah, philosophers don't earn much money." But when I hear the term philosopher, I'm like, "Damn!" Like, I'd love to be one of them. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a it's a brave new world for philosophy now. I mean, to be honest with you, I, so I'm a freelance. I guess in something of what I do is being a freelance philosopher, and that um, you know wasn't really possible for a long time. But actually, I've never. I don't think I've really worked a day in the university in my life. I never actually did my PhD just teaching university. I just love the ideas. I've always been inspired by the philosophers who kind of didn't do the university thing. They did their work uh, kind of among people who were just passionate and interested in the subject. So funnily enough, it's a brave new world. If you want to be a freelance philosopher with today's technology, this is the time to do it. So you're like a philosopher of the people. You're not beholden to some some big exec university Corporate. i know well you say it in a nice you way you can think I, what you want the truth is i'm just too lazy to have a real job but i like the fact <laughs> that you're making a sound like a, a very noble thing yeah. i like that <laughs> well in yeah. my in my head it totally is but yeah we're gonna pump your tires up again a yeah, little yeah. bit more Don't you worry. because this is like uh, the the idea of this podcast actually like conrad and i have been following your work we've read a lot of your books we'll get the um, fanboying out of the way yeah, early. Oh, just right. do it early so like this the the whole idea of the podcast actually is centered quite around your idea of the last supper so it's sort of maybe you could sort of start by explaining to the people who are listening or watching on youtube on um instagram what that is and then that maybe like m- people might even actually who are listening to the podcast might actually recognize um your voice, your voice. uh can you say for us yeah. i'm right and you're wrong <laughs> i'm right i say that all the time to be honest i'm right <laughs> and you're wrong yeah it feels good yeah. to say it <laughs> is that is that a comment yeah. that i'm on am i is that the sound bite you have 
we've, we've got a little clip of you at the beginning of our, it's like our, the intro to the podcast. Uh, so as people are listening, they'll hear our intro clip and it's a mash together of um, just a whole bunch of great thinkers. Yeah, um, like yourself, like yourself. Yeah. Jordan and you're, Peterson, You're the Joe opening Rogan, line. All the yeah. You're the opening line. Yeah, like Cam was saying, we, we may have been inspired by, if not outright plagiarised, so you do live in California, I hope the litigation isn't yeah. coming. You'll but, hear from my lawyers. Okay, <laughs> we'll send them our email. If you'd like to uh, let us know, give us a little bit of a background, because you, you've done a few projects called the Evangelism Project and The Last Supper. What are they about? Because we're a bit inspired by that, so we'd love to hear you talk about that. Yeah, so um, funnily enough, The Last Supper was the very first thing that I did. I, I have run a number of what what I call decentering practices, and I also have a thing called transformance art. And these are these are practices, kind of liturgical activities that help people embrace doubts, complexity, ambiguity, help people encounter um, their own anxiety and you know a variety of things like that. And uh, the very first one I ever did was the Last Supper. So uh, it's very nice that you've uh, taken an interest in that one. And um, basically, the Last Supper is one of a group of uh, decentering practices that I set up, and, and they're called decentering practices because uh, we often think of centering practices, and there's nothing wrong with a good old centering practice. But a decentering practice is designed to kind of throw us off course to put us into a kind of discomfort, to kind of get us to think differently and see differently. And, and actually, if you look at the history of human development, it's actually at the times of disruption that we often make the biggest leaps. So even if you think about uh, you know, Copernicus, who disrupted the idea that we are the center of the universe, you know, that, that, that kind of cosmological vision, or Darwin, who disrupted the idea that we are somehow you know, fundamentally different and outside of kind of biological life, or Freud with the idea of the unconscious. All of these are decentering experiences, but that actually were profoundly fertile. And a lot of my work is about saying that we need to go into the doubt and the darkness and the anxiety, not run from it. We have to find a way to, but it's very difficult to do. So we need, we need help. We need good art and we need good music and we need people who can help us in that journey. So the, the Last Supper is a very simple one and it's, a, it's about helping people experience a type of um, decentering in relation to what they believe so that they begin to see themselves as a stranger. Because often I think you're a stranger, you're weird and you're different. And my job is to either get you to be like me, right? So I either want you to not get rid of your weird beliefs and practices and, and basically come part of my social body. Uh, or if I can't do that, I wanna get rid of you. I wanna like not have you anywhere near me. Or I might wanna tolerate you as long as you don't talk about what you believe or what you do, we can hang out. Or finally, um, we may, I may go, oh, you know, beneath all of our differences, we're basically the same. Now, in all of those four, um, I'm right. In the first three, I'm right and you're wrong. And in the, the fourth, uh, we're both right, right? The, the most dangerous thing about the other is not that they're a stranger to me, is that they reveal that I'm a stranger to myself. 
So if I see myself through your eyes, I start to go, whoa, maybe my beliefs and practices are a bit weird. Things that I just took to be the truth. Now that I see myself through your eyes, I'm going like, I'm a bit of a monster. I'm a bit strange. I'm a bit bizarre. <laughs> so I, I, I encounter my own weirdness. Now that's the basis of the Last Supper. So very quickly, and then I'll stop waffling, sorry. Is um, 12 people, 12 people, we get together over food and wine, just like that kind of notion of the, the last meal of Christ, you know. We all get together and we invite someone who would have a belief that's very different from the people in the room. And they are sat in basically the site, the seat of Christ, you know. They're the bringer of truth. And we all know what we did with him, so they better be careful, right? <laughs> and then over, over the main course, they talk about what they believe and why. Then over, um, or sorry, over the over the starter, they do that. Then over the main course, we have Q and A, and then at the at dessert, um, they uh, there's just kind of a bit of a closing. And if we don't like what they say, it's their last supper, right? The, their last glass of yeah. wine's poisoned, and they we bury them in the backyard, <laughs> right? Um, and yeah. the idea is, if you do one of those events, it's just an interesting night. But if you do say twelve of them in the course of a year, encountering people who who see the world very different from you, you may not end up changing your beliefs, but you'll start to look at them differently. You'll start to kind of like feel a kind of decentering. And, and so that's what the Last Supper is. It's a, it's a process of helping us see the strangeness of ourselves through the eyes of the other. Yeah, so by engaging with other people and other people's perspectives, it allows you to see yourself differently. Yes, um, yes. Because it, a lot of the themes of, I mean, at the beginning of even what you were saying, you're, you're kind of entertaining the idea or pretty much centered around the idea that doubt is helpful, helpful yeah. or good or at the, at the very least unavoidable and within everybody. Yeah. So I guess when, you, when you're saying, when you look at, say, the construct of modern Christianity or many modern religions that hide doubt. There is no doubt, like there is certainty and there are things to be known. What What's your take on, on that? Are they just hiding the doubt? Would you say the doubt is still inherently being repressed yeah are we are are we just kind of hiding it through these other idols or belief structures or something yeah so like at a a very broad level to start with and then we'll focus in because that's a great question so at a broad level i would say that all of us whoever we are we do find decentering difficult we find that anything that kind of questions especially at the beginning when We've been brought up a certain way. The first time that we begin to ask questions of our political, religious, or cultural beliefs can be quite disturbing. And it can be disturbing because we may lose our friends, we may lose our family, we we are frightened that you know we'll lose the very ground of meaning, what's kind of grounded us and supported us. So it's always hard for us to do that. Religion's no exception, it's in every part of life. But the funny thing is there's kind of like two different kind of uh, tendencies you see within religion. And uh, one of them is that religion is something that we conspire with to help us avoid doubt and unknowing, to kind of solidify our beliefs, uh, where our God is just, you know, people's dogs look like them after a while and people get their dog, they re- <laughs> reflect their personality or whatever. So um, mm. a very you know, attractive New York woman might have her little puppy dog in a bag or some big strong guy will have his butch kind of like a uh, Rottweiler. Um, well, our yeah. gods kind of can look like ourselves as well. And yeah. uh, 
And so there's that type of religion which is what we conspire with in order to protect us from this experience of anxiety, from the experience of doubt, from the, uh, the experience of complexity and angst. Uh, but then there, is, um, there are traditions within religion that are designed to help us make peace with those, to enter into them um, and to find a place within them. And, but there are, also, and there are also rituals outside of religion that do that as well. Um, I often use the example of uh, you know, uh, alcohol, music and friends. There's a type of, if you're depressed, you go out and you might get drunk and you might listen to pop music really loud in a nightclub and just, you, it's so loud you can only have very, you know, in the end conversations with your friends and strangers, right? Or you might go to an Irish pub. It's got the same liturgical structure. Well, it's got the same, sorry, it's got the same tech, uh, technologies, but a different structure. So you've got a drink, but instead of getting drunk and forgetting about your problems, you might have a drink and talk about your week. And the music yeah. isn't some pop music that's so loud. It's some sad singer songwriter talking about how his one true beloved died of consumption and he'll never love again, right? So as you listen to the music, you're drawn into your own struggles. And the conversations you have with your friends are more substantial. So those are two types of liturgical structure. One that's kind of helping you avoid the anxiety and one that's helping you enter in. Oh, and I'll say one other thing, because you mentioned this and it's very important. Uh, a gold yeah. star, you've obviously been listening to my work. Because <laughs> um, it was a lovely leading question. It was like, you set it up, you said, so are you saying that the doubt's already in there? <laughs> and um, that's the key is, Sometimes people think in my work, I'm, I'm trying to get people to ask questions to doubt. But actually, at a more fundamental level, it's more saying, no, 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 it's, it's already there. We're already full of yeah, doubts and right. questions, but we don't often feel we're allowed to share them, even with ourselves. So we pretend yeah. to ourselves that everything's great. So someone who's very in the apologetics, for example, if they've got 20, you know, two, you know, 100 books on apologetics and they read it every day, that's more of a sign that they're not sure than they are. You know, that's a reaction for yeah, right. <laughs> So, um, And yeah. they might not even be aware of this yeah. as well. They, they can't absolutely. see it. It's just more of a subconscious thing. Yeah, it's really yeah. funny because they can't see it, but their bookshelf tells you, you know. Well, I don't read books. As you can see, you've got a few. I wonder what they say about you behind you there standing in front of a, a wall. Yeah. I'd yeah. Say it's, it's just it's like, nothing in them. They're just, just a blank thing. <laughs> it's just for effect. It's a Game of Thrones wall of books right there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So part of what we do on the podcast is try and um, understand the person, like we were saying, as much as the idea. So maybe if you can sort of, for people who don't know, um, like what got you to these ideas? Like, can you give us a bit of your background? Because like we, uh, Conrad and I have been talking about recently about ideas and that the individual person is frequently the context of the idea. So mm. um, it's very specific to an individual's um, upbringing, worldview, all of those sorts of things. So could you maybe just sort of pull apart a bit of your story and, and sort of share how you got to be the Peter Rollins that we're talking to today? Yes. I mean, it's an interesting question because... Um, so because there's two parts to it there's there's obviously what got me into this conversation i'll say a little bit about that but um also then 
there's the kind of the ideas themselves. So if, for example, if I was a mathematician yeah. and you were saying, well, what brought you into mathematics? You know, I might go, well, yeah, you know, I, I, I started getting into maths because my parents were arguing a lot. And so I would sit and I'd read mathematics, but then they'd very quickly go, but let's talk about the mathematical ideas, you know? So, because, yeah, because yeah, interestingly, yeah. What, what I'm I'm interested in as a, because I'm basically an old school philosopher, I'm interested in the, the truth. <laughs> and um, the truth uh, is a very complex thing but I, but I do like this question, and I'll, I'll try and give you a bit of background. But like, before I get too personal, which um, I'll say this. Is, like, we're, you we're, need a beer. Yeah, I mean, that's right. <laughs> no, a whiskey. You're a whiskey guy. Scott, well, gin. No, I'm a, a gin. gin guy. Gin. I'm a gin guy. I found yeah. my, like my a uh, Peter Owens quiz. Great. Yes, yes. There's some good gins in Australia, by the way. Four pillars. Oh, come out. Gin. We'll get them all for you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, not now, obviously. But I haven't been there for a while. Um, the uh, In the most basic sense, I, right, I'm not around for very long. We're, we don't get to be around for very long. We pop into this existence for a little while and go. And... Um, I thought I was really good to spend this little bit of time to kind of figure out what is it to be human and what is the nature of reality and how do those two things interlink? So that, that seemed like a really kind of interesting question for our brief time that I'm kind of here and in the world. I thought, you know, I could, you could ask a lot of things, but actually that's a really interesting question is what is the nature of reality? What is the I nature could solve of the human? mysteries that have plagued <laughs> humanity for thousands of years? We'll do that this morning. So we'll take we'll take we'll take an hour or two. And yeah, just that. before yeah. Brecky. Just before Brecky. Yeah. So um, I I know. By the way, I didn't come from an intellectual background. I dropped out of school with no okay. qualifications. I so this came to me late, but when I was seventeen or eighteen, um, I started to ask these questions and started to go. This is. This is very bizarre. I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about philosophy is philosophy takes, and anything like, like whenever, whenever you start to think about gravity, right? Uh, you go like, gravity is the weirdest thing, but it's so obvious to us, we don't think it's weird. So scientists often yeah. look at something that's comp- that we think is completely normal and go, that's very bizarre, isn't it? <laughs> so like the yeah. very fact that there is something rather than nothing is very bizarre. And the fact that we're here and we, we can question and so I got really interested in those questions. And, and as my work developed, my interest is really in, um, you know, so I am, because I'm theologically driven and psychoanalytically driven, I'm really interested in, in what in psychoanalysis is called the cure. In philosophy, it's called absolute knowledge. In Christianity, it's called salvation. But in all of these different ways, it's basically a form of being in the world that is fruitful that is joyful that is productive whatever so a a lot of my work is about connecting what what is essential about human subjectivity what is what does it mean to be human how does that connect us with the wider world and how do we live well before we die so the question for me i suppose for a while was what you know and what happens after we is there life after death but but then increasingly i thought the more interesting question is what is life is life possible before we die you know um but then so that was the gateway drug was it (laughs) yeah it was and and funnily enough i have to say religion played a role because when i was 17 i had no religious background really um but i had a you know briefly had this conversion experience with a charismatic evangelical church and it was very positive for me because i had never thought seriously about anything the nature of reality or anything like that and as I was a seventeen-year-old some... wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, as you wouldn't. I was just, you know, doing my thing, and then I had this experience, and then started to hang out with these people who were actually asking massive questions 
They, now, some of them thought they had the answers to it, but, but asking massive questions about the nature of reality. And so they got me started on this journey. And also that community was really interested in what does it mean to be a healthy kind of person, to, be, to, to experience um, a type of uh, cure. And so the, all of that kind of got me to start my journey into uh, what I do now. So it was the evangelical questioning of the nature of reality yeah that i guess can mention the idea of the gateway drug yeah. that began your yes. journey like I, I say gateway drug in the sense that it's the idea you begin with or the thing you begin with that leads you on to the harder stuff you know like that's i love that i love that phrase some some people you know refer to the rob bells in the christian world as he's the gateway drug to like being more <laughs> progressive and universalism <laughs> and hell might yes. not be a thing as soon yeah. as you start his numa dvds ah oh, it's all over yeah um slippery slope <laughs> yeah so to distill that that like beginning process i is it are you able to map your was it the questioning of the nature of reality that you started to do? And has that kind of gateway drug that led you into evangelicalism, the same thing that I guess as you ramp up the substances led you out of it? Or did the question change as you as you moved yeah, through like, it, I how guess? How did that idea develop through your process that you are yes. today? Very good, very good. Yeah, and, and I do like this phrase gateway drug because it's funny to think of evangelicalism as my gateway drug to radical <laughs> theology that I do today, but it's kind of true that it kind of was. That um, with the soft. So, I mean, here's the thing. I'll tell you what the very first uh, thing that started it all off actually was what, what I call a religious experience. And now when I'm talking about religious experience, just to be very precise about it is, for me, a religious experience isn't an experience of something. It's what transforms your experience of everything. So it's not like there's 10 experiences in your world and then you have an 11th experience, right? It's something that changes all 10 experiences that you have. Now, so I had this and I call it a religious experience because it happened in the context of that kind of religious environment. But but that's what interested me because it's, it's something that I realized it is possible for someone to go through a fundamental short circuiting um, with uh, and, and reintegration with reality. That question was fascinating to me because I felt I experienced it myself when I was seventeen. Just my life turned around, and then and then I was in this evangelical community. But very quickly, I was like, I don't think. Although I really enjoyed it, and they opened up a lot of questions for me, um, I felt like I want to be true to that event. That was the thing. How if I treat, How can I be true to the event? The first type of language I have had was evangelical language, and then what I did is I I kind of went deeper into that, and as I went deeper into it, it kind of opened up. So, so for, for the philosopher Hegel, and it's very important because for because uh, I'm a Hegelian and I think Hegel's one of the greatest philosophers who ever lived. But for Hegel, it's like when you start to think, all right, and it can be different times for different people. When people start to become critical thinkers, maybe you're 15, 17, 25, but the point when you start to question what things are at, Hegel says, don't try to start from the right starting point because you can't, right? There's no right starting point because your your mind's like a shopping trolley and it's already full of goods when you go into the shopping trolley of ideas. You've had 20 years or 15 years of ideas being put into the trolley of your mind. Um, so it's more of a case of you know pulling things out, putting things in. So. You have to always start where you're at, 
right? There's that old story about mm. this, this American who was in Ireland and looking for Tipperary and she pulled over and there was an old farmer and she said to the farmer, it's guy Seamus, says, Seamus, do you know the way to Tipperary? And Seamus thinks, he says, listen, miss, he says, the problem is, he says, I wouldn't start here, right? Now, the point is, <laughs> you have to start here. <laughs> you have to start exactly yeah. where you are. So Hegel right, says, yeah, yeah. but Hegel says, you, you go into whatever language and whatever place you are and you go deeper and deeper into it. And as you go deeper and deeper into it, it will expand and open up and open up and open up. And, um, and that's mm. kind of dialectic. So, that, so I started my journey really within that, that framework. And as I went deeper into it, I discovered the mystics. And then the mystics opened up the kind of medieval philosophers and those medieval philosophers drew me to continental philosophy. And it, it all, you know, the, the journey just opened, 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 expanded, expanded, expanded. Uh, but my beginning yeah. point was there, was that when I was 17 years old and had this, this uh, cycle, a subjective transformation, let's call it that. So when you were 17, you had what you were describing as a conversion experience that you're saying changed how you saw everything, like your yes. worldview shifted and changed. Yeah. And then, but, and it's sounding like evangelicalism up and like gave you a language to and a ask and a framework yeah. to ask these questions and you took it seriously, kept asking the questions of the nature of reality, I suppose. Because yeah. um, often, like, you hit a wall, in in my experience, you often hit a wall of, like, in a, in a Christian denomination, you'll hit a wall of, like, it can't go any the questions, further. questions, I guess, took oh, you yes. to a certain yes. point. Yeah. And then at that point, I guess it's that same question of questioning reality and questioning why we're here and, and things like that, that I guess left let you uh what was it leave that language or you still have that language but then include other sets of language it might be like too, hegel for example yeah, yeah. It, it might be too long to map your journey but like what was there a next logical language that you then went okay well this is like what what do you think the limitations of the evangelical language were and what did you supplement it with when you kept questioning the nature of reality yeah. yes yes no that's a great question and, and basically what happened is as you say the, the first language i was given was that kind of evangelical language that, obviously i had stuff from the past but the first language that helped me try to articulate um, the nature of reality was was that language um the the funny thing was Oh, and by the way, there's a thing called, you know, like the term purity culture. And I like the term purity culture yeah. because we're, the world is full of purity cultures. They're not just religious, they're secular purity cultures. A purity culture is anything that says you have to think in this way or do these acts. And everybody who doesn't right. think and act like that, they're dirty, right? Purity cultures are always defined. And that's in like politics and... Yes, exactly. Who's dirty and who's clean. And uh, we're purity cultures proliferate in, se in secular and sacred environments. Um, and thankfully... Um, I my, the environment I was in kind of allowed me a little bit of space to dirty that up because actually religion Christianity in its core uh, is about kind of uh, questioning purity cultures I mean the whole thing is what's interesting about the gospels is there's always this this kind of back and forth of who's the pure and who's the dirty and then you go like oh the yeah. pure isn't as pure as you think and the dirty's not as dirty as you yeah. think right so there's there's this constant kind of um, muddying of the purity cultures yeah, yeah so I started off that language that what I started to discover within that language, but that also brought me to a limit was that doubt and unknowing and questioning and uh, um, 
the dark night of the soul was all part of that tradition was in there and and so as I started to explore that, then I, I guess the next step was the Christian mystics. I started looking at people like Meister Eckhart and, uh, uh, and, and his work in particular. There were some of the other mystics, but Eckhart's kind of the most important. And kind of he began to help me kind of find a language to articulate that dimension of life yeah, right. that potentially yep. the evangelical language you know was you know maybe he was exploring but but the mystics kind of really gave me a strong language for that um so that was probably yeah. the next step and then I, st I started a thing called icon where i developed a kind of space for people to explore um, a type of questioning a radical questioning yeah the next step still came within that christian tradition even though like I think what we'll probably sort of steer to a little bit now is like your idea of pyrotheology. So um, somebody hearing that might question what that is. So I'll get you to explain that. But it's sort of like the next step stayed well within the bounds of, of like a Christianity, so to speak, um, before you started exploring and, and finding new ways of, of understanding it and viewing the world. Would that sort of make a bit of sense to you well yeah although i'll say this this is i mean this is great we're getting into some uh i could talk all day about this stuff right um you're asking very good questions <laughs> well we got nothing to do <laughs> yeah. um the the thing i want to claim about christianity so again i don't come from a christian background anything like that so my interest in christianity was you know as an adult firstly going into what's called confessional christianity which is you know what you see in churches and then moving from confessional christianity to what's called radical theology um yeah which kind of like is less about uh you know beliefs uh but but uh, like theism or atheism or anything like that but going deeper into the the core meaning of theology so i started off with confessional theology um but here here's the reason why i never left it and i always had this back and forth with some of my friends who didn't quite get this so basically Christianity, um, it's always been a universalist religion, um, unlike particularistic religions. So you've got particularistic religions like Judaism or Islam, but Christianity, where basically you don't have to be Jewish, right? In fact, if you meet someone on the street um, who's, who's Jewish, who's kind of getting people to convert, that they are just speaking to other people who are Jewish. If you in New York, if you go up to someone and go, "I'm not Jewish, but I'd like to maybe become a Jew," they'll be like, "Oh, this is a nightmare. It's going to take forever." Right? <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> Christianity's always been universalist in, in two predominant reasons. So the conservative one is the message is for everybody, right? So it's universal. Mm -hmm. The message is to yeah. be preached to the ends of the earth. It's a message for everyone. Everyone must ultimately, you know, uh, make a decision. So that's obviously convert, uh, conservative universalism. It's very funny when I hear uh, conservatives talk about their being against universalism. Christianity is a, has always been a universalist religion. That's in terms yeah, of its sure. reach. Now, a liberal or progressive, um, uh, uh, by the way, someone just asked me, did I say professional or confessional, con confessional? Confessional Christianity radical. So I'm just answering a question on your Instagram. If yeah, 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 cool, cool. Um, the, um, then, uh, so what was I saying there? 
Uh, I always lose my way. <laughs> That's all right. I love this. This always, by the way, this this is how I keep people listening. Because if you know that I might lose my way at any point, you have to keep listening so that if I ask you where I was, you have to tell me. It's just good teaching strategy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You just finished talking about the oh the liberal way. Yeah, conservative universalism, and then kind of more liberal universalism is the message is for everyone, and everyone it's effective for everyone. Right. So. Ultimately, everybody gets in, right? <laughs> at the at the end right. of days or whatever. So those are two forms of like just confessional forms of universalism. But there is this third dimension of universalism, and I and I really discovered this through the French philosophers, who many of the best French philosophers at the moment have all written on Christianity and Paul. They're not uh, within the church at all, but they're interested in the the the, the work of Paul. And they talk about this other type of universalism. And the third type of universalism sounds very weird at first, but the third type of universalism is nobody gets in. We're all outsiders. Uh, what you could call when Paul talks about the trash of the world. I mean, Luther, I think, calls us the shit of the world at one stage, right? And what do you do with dirt? Well, dirt is to be placed outside. It's not for the inside, it's for the outside. And this, this universalism is the idea that that what we all, what joins us all, right? What unifies us all is the fact that we're all not one with ourselves. We're all kind of outsiders in some way. And actually, right. many of the, most of the problems that we see in the world are people denying their own doubts, their own unknowing, their own feeling out of place in the world, denying that and then scapegoating, putting that onto somebody else and hating somebody else. And that actually, if you right. can come to terms with your own lack, your own doubts, your own unknowing, your own anxiety, and, and not try to get rid of it, as you can do that, you kind of, it sounds weird at first, but you encounter this dimension of being human, which is, and I've actually just did a, an Instagram live five minutes, half an hour ago on this, is anxiety is the confrontation with a lack a lack of meaning, a sense that we're going to die, or a lack of uh, ethics, and we don't feel we're living up to something. So anxiety is this confrontation with a lack. And the idea is if, if, we, if we can't confront that lack within ourselves, you know, we, it causes all sorts of problems, all sorts of difficulties. But Soren Kierkegaard says that anxiety, or what he calls spirit, but anxiety is universal. It, you, no one can escape it. Everyone it basically yeah it's a it's the confrontation with with freedom with 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 the fact that we don't know what we have to do in the world that we have to decide it as jean paul sartre says a dog is a dog a stone is a stone but a human being is a human becoming like a dog doesn't say am i being in dogish but a human says am i being inhuman right so that kind of yeah, not, yeah. not being is part of the human subjectivity is human being and all of that to say some philosophers talk about Christianity as, and Paul as bringing to light this type of universalism, which means, it sounds weird at first, but it's like, that the idea of the crucifixion, the whole idea of theology is that God becomes nothing called kenosis, right? Kenosis, God empties God's self into humanity. And then redoubled kenosis is God experiences the absence of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So God experiences right. what's called the divided subject. And this, this whole kind of like structure is this notion of emptying um, that we participate in. And 
And when you say I identify with Christ, what you're saying is you you identify with the one who lost all identity. So you're identifying with the loss of identity. So weirdly, the idea is that that Christianity helps us, can help us um, uh, make space for the not at oneness, for the outsider that we are, and that this is a positive thing. And so this is going outside of confession of Christianity because you don't need to believe in God or anything like that, but you're getting to what the core of the crucifixion means. What's the core of the whole structure of the, the narrative? So I kind of feel like I've all just gone deeper and deeper into Christianity. I feel like I've never left it. And then Hegel, I think, is the ultimate Christian theologian, you know? Because <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> yeah. I, would, I would encourage anyone, because he's, I've listened to you for, for quite some time. Sometimes when I'm trying to go to sleep, sometimes when I'm trying to learn something new. Yeah. Yeah. Both. <laughs> Love the accent, always. But anyone who's listening uh, on, our, on our end and wondering, like, he's using some terms they might be familiar with from Christianity. Yeah. Uh, but if you're, if you're curious at all with uh, Peter's definitions and understandings and explanations of things, follow his work. He's got a couple of, he's got great books that explain all this stuff. Yeah. He's always doing Instagram live and things like Seminars that. Seminars and stuff. So yeah. definitely check out his work to understand it uh, a little bit more. Because um, we're only really scratching the surface We're just kind here. of scratching <laughs> the surface here. But so what I'm kind of gleaning here to, to map your trajectory from where you kind of began with the gateway drug idea of just questioning reality, like what yeah. is this? Yeah. And in order to question reality, you are then given a language through Christianity to ask these questions and begin to answer these questions. You went deeper and it seems as if you embraced reality and that required you to embrace the reality of doubt and darkness and then through uh, i guess embracing this reality of doubt and darkness which you're saying everybody has and if you don't think you do you're probably just hiding it just avoiding it some better than others Um, Mm -hmm. and then through this doubt and darkness you're talking about like the dark night of the soul is your work now going into the continual exploration of, I mean, is the search to understand our own doubts, darkness and anxiety, is that still the same question you're asking of why are we here and what is this life? Is that a a sub-question of the very beginning question that you began to ask? Or is it a whole new one altogether? <laughs> yeah, this is interesting. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, we, we have, um, you know, this is, I'm sure for if anybody's new to my stuff, and I'm realizing that probably most people listening to this will be because uh, they're, they're your audience um, and not my audience. Uh, the, some of these ideas could seem kind of like, um, you know, uh, all like kind of, difficult to, to follow at first so <laughs> i apologize yeah. but um but, but stick with it it's worth it guys yeah yeah <laughs> um and so the question you're asking yeah is exactly that i for me there's been a continuity and here's the continuity because I, I i was apologizing to your listeners because i'm about to say something weird again um <laughs> okay. is that my, my work started with basically seeing the value of doubt complexity ambiguity the the importance of questioning oneself, finding the contradictions in one's uh, thinking and one's life and looking at those and, and, and kind of moving through them. Now, started there, my first book's about that. Then I started taking a very big interest in, in how this looks in other disciplines and primarily psychoanalysis because psychoanalysis is a similar thing. Is 
you, you go to an analyst because you have a symptom. So say, for example, your symptom is you're grinding your teeth at night. Um, well, you know, you might, in discussing this, you might go, well, you know, I'm grinding my teeth at night. It turns out, like, I'm really angry with my partner. Like, uh, you know, I'm being, there's a lot of demands that are being made on me. And I want to shout at her. But also, you know, I love her and I do want to shout at her. And so the symptom is a, a, a congealment of contradiction. You want to shout and you don't want to shout. And it just happens to be coming out that you, you keep your jaw really tightly closed, right? But symptoms are all congealments of contradictions, right? Whether it's, you know, your love and hate of someone, um, fear and desire. But you'll find within a, within a, within a, a symptom, a contradiction. Now, in analysis, you look at the contradiction and you start to bring it to light. And then what happens So analysis is, is like another form of practice, another form of language to understand this stuff is what you're saying. Yeah, to, to bring to light the contradiction. And the difference between psychoanalysis and say counseling or life coaching or other forms of non-analytic therapy is that a lot of therapies are designed to get rid of the contradictions, to reintegrate you into life, to try to get your, your life working again. But in psychoanalysis, the, the, it's dialectic, which means it's, it's the opposite of this. In, in, in uh, psychoanalysis, what simply happens is that contradiction doesn't get fixed, but it leads to a deeper contradiction. So maybe you find out that actually you're annoyed with your mother <laughs> from when you were a child. And, uh, and you know, it's, you're replaying what's called repetition compulsion. You're replaying uh, an early childhood thing you're replaying it in your current relationships right transference but then you look at that contradiction and then that leads to a deeper contradiction of like you know that that the difficulty of just being human and having contradictory yeah. emotions and and what happens in analysis is eventually you come to accept the contradiction that you are so there's the contradictions that you have and they're contingent and there's the contradiction that you are and you can't get rid of that, right? That's that's this kind of like we're we're full of these contradictions, and that's the cure, right? Now, in the same way, when when I started off going, start pulling the thread of the doubt and the unknowing, the deadlocks in your life, what happens is you start moving to deeper and deeper questions and deadlocks and contradictions. And Hegel is all about exploring how society itself evolves through this deepening of contradiction. And then the trick is this. The trick is you realize the contradiction is not simply something that you have to get rid of. It's not some contingent thing you can think away, but that contradiction is hard baked into reality itself. And I'll use one example from the sciences. There's loads of examples, but one example from the sciences is say in physics, where the unknown in, in traditional physics, the unknown is what you don't know, and then there's what you do know. And you're, and you're moving forward to try to work out the contradictions that are within the, any given situation, right? You're, you're studying the cosmos, you're studying the nature of light, right? And you're seeing these contradictions, you're working it out. When quantum mechanics is what Hegelian would call the moment of absolute knowledge, it, oh, and what he means by that is it's the moment that you realize that the contradiction is within reality. It's not, so that's the moment when you look at the wave particle duality and you realize, oh, a, a contradiction is not simply something that you can get rid of. At a very deep level, it is sown into reality itself. Also, you've got Gödel's and uh, incompleteness theorem in mathematics. Darwin called evolution. Evolutionary theory is the contradiction in biological reality. 
the unconscious and psychoanalysis is the same. So in all of these, there is this movement from doubt and unknowing is something that I can get rid of eventually, or, or if I can't get rid of it, at least I'm moving towards getting rid of it. To the mm, point where yeah. you go, oh no, there's something that's unknowable because the nature of the universe itself is unknowable. Uh, and this, mm. in, in theological terms, this is called the crucifixion. This is the moment when the absolute God experiences a rupture within the absolute. So in Hegel's terms, you realize that the, the that reality itself is also uh, not at one with itself. So that's that, that's that's the trajectory of my work. I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can kind of map that where you're going. <laughs> I think <back. laughs> I think I get it. Well, um, so it, it sounds like you're saying that this doubt and this anxiety is is i guess this feeling that we just don't understand what is going on like psychoanalytic theory and and these all these smart philosophers that are above my pay grade yeah we think we're angry at at our partner but we're really angry with our mother yeah and and we have we have no idea essentially it sounds like what you're saying oh you're human you think you know what's going on yeah the more you question you'll discover you've got no damn clue (laughs) and the journey of understanding what you don't know even about yourself and being a human and then you're kind of saying that that end point with all these lines of thought and in just accepting it so you're not yeah. you're not going to find the answer you're not going to find the certainty you're not going to be fulfilled you're not going to get rid of that thing that makes you anxious the only thing i guess left at the end of the day to do is just go it's just accept it well you know it's slightly more radical than that it's slightly more radical and okay. i like i like the way you said that because that, that's that's kind of for me right you're 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 at 10 and now i'm going to turn the dial up to 11 right so Good. the journey the, 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 jur- the journey starts with and this is the movement from what's called epistemological humility to ontological humility so epistemological humility and um, there's someone like uh, i'm sure i could pick a book out here uh well it's someone like merrill westphal who's a philosopher who says we for, you start off going, I don't know. I don't know something. And then maybe you get to a real epistemological humility where you go like, like my mind is finite. Like this is Immanuel Kant. I mean, oh, you know, the, I, so we, I can't know. Yeah, we have, we have inherent limitations. So what's called the yeah. noumenal realm is totally beyond us. We can only know the phenomenal. We can't know the noumenal, the, what's called the in itself, right? So that's that next level. That by the, So that's best articulated by Immanuel Kant this view that we can understand the limits and we can and we can carve out what it's possible for humans to know and what is not possible for humans to know we can kind of do all that so philosophy can do a lot but philosophy ultimately will draw the limits and will say you can't get beyond this but then hegel comes along and he does something very clever and he says well basically he has a very sophisticated argument that says this is that it's not just that you don't have a clue it's that the universe doesn't have a clue either, right? It's that, and so you, right. so what it's called is it positivizes the negation. In other words, it makes the doubt, makes the unknowing into a type of knowing. It makes it into a knowing unknowing. And again, just to, to make it precise, um, it's like saying that it's not that I don't know uh, what reality is in itself. It's you get to the point where you realize that reality in itself is incomplete. That there's, and that's why everything exists. So, like for example, mm. Gödel's incompleteness theorem, he shows very convincingly that mathematical theory, when it tries to 
map onto reality, when it tries to totalize itself, basically, it falls into contradiction. So for Godel, mathematics can never totalize, can never you know, grind itself, because when it tries to grind itself, it falls into contradiction. Now, what Godel said on that is that he thought that for that reason, mathematics doesn't give us ultimate insight into, you know, into the real, right? That's kind of right. seems Kant. Immanuel Kant said uh, in the 1800s, he said, reason brings you to antinomies. And what he meant by antinomies is reason will bring you to one belief and you can reason just as well and it will bring you to the opposite. So you can reason yeah, right, yeah. that the universe has a beginning and you can realize, re, re, reason that it doesn't. You can re reason that, that God exists or God doesn't, that there's freedom and there's determinism. And then Kant drew from that conclusion that reason cannot get us into the nature of reality because we fall into contradiction. The tool itself yeah. can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, Hegel himself comes along and says, no, no, that's exactly your success. You think that's the failure, but the failure is the success. Reality itself falls into contradiction. <laughs> so what you've done is you've actually shown how reality oh. is not at one with itself. And, you know, again, just like say in physics, we see this with superpositioning, wave particle geality, but also in psychoanalysis yeah. with the unconscious. Uh, there's various names for it in various disciplines. I mean, evolution is the name in biology, the non-at-oneness of organisms with themselves that generates complexity. So that's Hegel's big insight. And so theologically, my work is similar. It's saying that you start by going, I don't know, and I have doubts, and I, uh, I, I feel alienation. Not, I feel that I'm not at one in the world. And then eventually you get to the point where you go, oh, that's the very place where I am inscribed into the world by not feeling that I'm part of the world. That's why I'm part of the world. That's the universalism, right? By not fitting in, I am fitting in. So we are a community. I've just finished producing a short film actually called Alone, A-L-L-O-N-E. And it's, so it can be spelled alone, or it can be spelled all alone, or it can be spelled all one. Because we are all one in being alone. We are all alone. We, we, we all share this something that is lacking. And, and so does the universe itself. Yeah. And that's the perspective change. That's yeah. the perspective. And that's what Hegel called absolute knowing. That's what I think Christianity calls salvation. That's what psychoanalysis calls the cure. And in, in politics, it's called democracy. Because democracy is where all of the, the, uh, the conflictual demands of society that fall into deadlocks and contradiction yeah. are brought together, yeah. embraced for the possibility of forward momentum. So there's names for this in various fields. Uh, yeah, so. yeah, okay. But it's all got an underlying commonality. So mm -hmm. um, I guess part of what we're trying to do with the podcast is um, to help create like a practical outcome of these sorts of things so could you tell us like how does it actually help you like as you move through the world yeah and follow the rabbit hole of questioning yeah. how does it affect your interactions with other people how does it affect um your relationships um how do you see people that are different to you how does accepting the inherent contradiction in everything and including yeah. accepting the doubt and this way of thinking how how does it benefit 
does it benefit? Yeah, yeah. it does yes, it benefit. Yes, yes. Are you better yeah. off just, like you <laughs> just going to church, yeah. just stay in fundamental Christianity, and just sit there, just quietly? It's sipping, much nicer there, is it? Coats and yes. I mean, yeah. <laughs> this can sound very sadistic, you know. It can seem like why would you bring someone into this? It sounds like the most yeah. horrific thing yeah. you could do to somebody, you know. And um, yeah. yeah, I'm just doing this to I will destroy the lives of millions. Um, <laughs> but here's the, here's the here's the trick. The trick is the belief the fundamental belief in what's called dialectics, which means the fundamental belief that that the way that the, the way into life is through death, the way to the light is through darkness, the way to a type of uh, peace is through chaos, a type of certainty is through doubt. And this has been proven time and again. Uh, so even Descartes, Descartes doubts everything. And so he gets to the point where he doubts everything. And the only thing he can't doubt is that he's doubting. Right, so the very act of doubt gets into a certainty. <laughs> and so he says, I think, therefore yeah. I am. Because I can't think that I'm not thinking. If I think I'm not thinking, I'm thinking I'm not thinking, therefore I am. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So this dialectic move is, especially if you go to an analyst and you go, oh, like my life is falling apart. I feel like there's a trapdoor beside me with all of these monsters and they're trying to get me. I just want to close the trapdoor. Well, the analyst will push you in <laughs> because they know that you have to go into yeah. that place of the monsters to get beyond them. Yeah. So yeah. the, the good news of Christianity is really bad news, and the bad news of Christianity is good news. So the good news of Christianity in professional church is you can, you can have the answer and you can be complete. But that's bad news, because the more you seek completeness, the more incompleteness you feel. So the most, I live in LA because it's the most yeah. religious place in the world. Uh, everyone is offering certainty and satisfaction. So every corner, if you are famous enough, have enough money, da, 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 then you can be whole and complete. So it's a very religious place. Um, and uh, the, the point is, the more people believe that they can get that, the more anxious and unhappy and explosive they become. The more you seek certainty, the more riven with doubt you are. The bad news that you're incomplete and you can't know the answer is actually good news. That's the gospel message. But that's, you can't buy a private plane on that. Come to the front. Life is shit and you don't have the answers. Come on, come on up, come on up. <laughs> Why we play yeah. just as I am. I once could see and now I'm blind, you know. Uh, but that's not going to work. But it does work. And that's my, it's like that actually for me is the good news of Christianity. And it's radical formation and radical theology that actually the space of the church is to be a collective of the contradiction. The space of the church is to help you undergo the experience of what's called the death of God, the crucifixion experience, the entering into the absolute unknowing, into the darkness. That is the role of this collective. It's a collective of the contradiction. So you would say we all can also participate in that metaphorical crucifixion of dying to the to the Yes. to the chase of certainty of dying to the need of things like God died to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We, by doing that, by entering this sadistic, ah, oh, it's, I don't know anything and I'm just going to keep questioning and keep questioning reality. People might conclude, well, that would just lead to nihilism yep. and that's the worst, but you're almost saying yes. the exact opposite. It's the crucial saying, element. Yeah, yeah. When you go into the nihilism, when you go into the questioning, when you go into those things, that is what ultimately uh, brings you to a greater place of peace yeah. than it would have if you're going to uh, the healers, the pseudoscience on the side, on the street corner, making you live longer, whether it be uh, church saying if you just believe this set of doctrine absolutely and, and and for me it's the only way to get to the interestingly the properly christian notion of god which is if you look within the text 
you've got this notion of God, the move from God as an object that you love to God as the name you give to the reality you experience in the act of love itself. Now that's a very slight change, but it's a massive change. It's from the idea that God is an object that, that you relate to, to you relate to one another in love, embracing the complexity of life, trying to do good for one another. And the depth dimension of that is, is what you might want to call God or the sacred. So it's this, and, and it's only, you could only get there through the crucifixion. You only get to that resurrection through the crucifixion event, um, which is exactly what you said, it's, it's the death of meaning. Um, that experience. You've mentioned a few names, like a few philosophers mm -hmm. and a few like Christian, like central Christian ideas, like crucifixion and things like that. And there's a little bit of a, I don't know if it's a twist or if it's just a different understanding or a different way of looking. At, and and particularly, I'd say when it comes to the um, the philosophers that you've talked about, like Nietzsche and those sorts of guys, it sounds like there might be like a misunderstanding. When I was sort of told about those sorts of guys, it was it seems to me like I'm hearing from you that what I've been told they meant by things like the death of God, for example, might be a little bit, you know, wrong in inverted commas. It's sort of like there's... A, so just maybe just explore just like some of those ideas that might need to be sort of realigned or rethought about so that some of these ideas that you're talking about can we can sit with them a little bit more comfortably if that makes sense yes absolutely and, and here like this is i almost don't want to say this because it sounds so grandiose and this is not about me but it's about what i believe about these figures like people like hegel is i believe that they that they're holding the keys to a new reformation I mean, nothing. That's why I've given my life to it. So I believe that they hold the keys to a reformation, and a reformation is always such a radical reconfiguring of what was that nothing changes, but nothing stays the same. Just like religious experience I mentioned earlier in the sure. podcast, where nothing changes, yeah. but nothing stays the same. Um, it's the same yeah. way. Like the, the same language is used, the same text is read, and yet somehow there's all of this different stuff is seen. Like that's what happened with Luther yeah. as well. Like, so you see things that you didn't see before. So we are talking about some kind of crazy ideas, but Nietzsche is a good example of someone who, um, you know, a lot of people, especially within the confessional church, uh, maybe have a certain concern about Nietzsche or dislike of Nietzsche um, or uh, think that, well, he called himself the Antichrist, so, you know, you can understand why. And he must <laughs> be, that's the easy label he gave yeah. it to himself. He's not trying to help himself, right? <laughs> He's calling yeah, himself yeah. that. The only thing worse could have been 666 on the forehead. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Listen, if there were tattoos around, he would have done it, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, he, uh, but the interesting about Nietzsche, so Nietzsche was an incredibly religious guy in his youth, a very devout. And the truth is, he stayed very religious throughout his entire life. I mean, he's, he's a prophet of source, right? And he was so, uh, you know, he was attacking confessional Christianity and he was sought as you know, had a lot of problems, but his critique was like that of a, of, a, of a Hebrew prophet. And the funny thing is, as you probably know, he never actually met Kierkegaard, but they were living around the same time and they were writing around the same time. And Kierkegaard's critique is just as vicious as Nietzsche's. Right. And they, they both are very, very similar. Um, Nietzsche, he did say himself, he says, someday they'll call me a saint. And that's kind of happening. A friend of mine wrote a book called Pious Nietzsche because a lot of the, a lot of the really interesting Nietzschean scholars and writers see in Nietzsche a profound affinity with Christianity. And like the, the most interesting one is, is the phrase, the death of God, right? So 
First thing about the phrase death of God is it's kind of lifted from Hegel and Hegel lifts it from Luther and Luther from the Bible, right? There's a, a direct lineage to this notion, right. which is very particularly Christian. And is that the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is, is that like the, that's the death of God that was lifted from the Bible? Is that the part? Well, that, that's an interesting question because yes, kind. So it basically is the crucifixion. Yep. But some have uh, made a very interesting, what's called a speculative insight, a philosophical insight into that phrase, my God, my God. So I, I actually want to parse that out into two. The crucifixion is the death of God. And then the the self-alienation of God, which is that claim, is another very interesting dimension of the death of God that um, we could maybe talk about in a minute. So because I'm glad you said that those are those are the two bits. But but first of all, it's primarily just the crucifixion, the, the theological notion that God dies and not yeah. even just a kind of representative of God, not kind of just somebody who's kind of like a, an ambassador for God, but yeah. God. Yeah. God dies on the cross. That's yeah. a very radical idea. That's why Hegel was so interested in it because it's so it's so absurd in a Camus sense. Absurdity is kind of the clash of two opposites and the experience. So the idea of the eternal in the temporal is an absurd idea. The idea of God dying, mm -hmm. it, like the, we, it sounds normal to us now, but the idea of God an eternal being, being in time, yeah. or yeah. all of it's absurd. It's crazy. Yeah. And we're trying to recover the craziness of it. So, but when Nietzsche when Nietzsche uses that that t tells the parable of the death of God, the first thing you notice about it is right. If it was a humanist, because Nietzsche was anti-humanist. Um, he's in the anti-humanist tradition, like uh, uh, humanists are, yeah, uh, let's not get started on that. But okay. <laughs> if, 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 it, if it was a humanist parable, it would be some atheist telling some religious crazy people that God is dead. But Nietzsche has it the other way around. It's a religious crazy person who's telling these humanists that God is dead. And that they don't realize it because actually they have the same structure as religion. They've just, they've got, they've got, he calls the shadow of God without God. So for him, secularism in its, in its crude form is just, um, has not experienced the rupture of, of the death of God. Is it broadening is it, like the definition of God in the sense that the humanists also have a structure similar to the religious definition of God? And he's saying God is dead and they don't even realize that they have a God in that sense. Exactly, exactly. The whole humanist thing is that, so the, the, the humanist structure really comes from Feuerbach. I actually like Feuerbach a lot. I'm not a huge fan of a lot of the humanist stuff, but Feuerbach I'm a huge fan of. But Feuerbach's main argument is pretty much that God is the kind of like the projection of the essence of humanity onto another. So what we do in order to find, in order to understand ourselves, uh, this is this, by the way, is a central idea now in Freud and others. But is in order to understand yourself, you first have to see yourself outside, mirrored, right? So you right. see yourself in your brother or your sister, or whatever, and then you take it back. And so Feuerbach is saying that that God is the way in which humanity gets to see its own qualities, and then right. we have to take it back. And actually, Feuerbach thought thought that Christianity was doing that. So he called himself a friend of the theologians because he said, because Christianity is about realizing that we are the body of God in the world. But right. so Feuerbach has this notion that God is, say, the kind of the, the reflection of the essence of humanity, what we can do and what we can be if we try. Um, but uh, Feuerbach, so Nietzsche is saying that, so you haven't really experienced the um the death of god god has just become human 
right? So it's the humans are God now. Nietzsche wants to do something much more radical, and he sees this as a religious vocation, which is to actually experience the rupture of of reality entirely. So there's this there's this very religious dimension in Nietzsche, and and when he was insane at the end of his life, he was signing his name the Messiah. <laughs> you know, there's he he was very caught in it. So yeah, yeah, often it's good to say you know someone like Nietzsche um, is a uh, is potentially got a lot more interesting stuff to say about. Uh, theology than some of the people within it. Yeah, and it we, it might be worth um, spruiking your atheism for Lent idea here too, because um, for those that don't know Peter Rollins and his work, he does every every Lenten season. He's got a, a series that he calls Atheism for Lent, uh, where it sort of explores um, ideas like he's talking about here with Nietzsche and other. Um, non-religious or non like identified as atheists and and what can we learn out of and can, can i say one thing about that actually because just because yeah not 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 advertising it because it's basically over now but just yeah. the context <laughs> yeah. of it hey the uh, the reason why i do atheism for lent is of course it's a it's a lenten practice we give up things for lent so why not you know give up god so jokingly right give up yeah. so but it's also it brings you to the point at easter where you can really experience the cry of christ my god my god why have you forsaken me but my main reason for doing it is that people often think that theism and atheism are separate or opposites right that they never the twain shall meet but they've always been in a dance all through the history of thought and there's and it's not even that they're they're in separate camps the mystics were atheists they said every time you say the word god you're not saying god you have to be an atheist to your conception of god right so there's there's a there's weird ways in which atheism and theism inter interact and interrelate so in my course atheism for lent over 40 days people experience theological atheism philosophical atheism but they start to see that that actually negation which is atheism to negate theism that's how movement happens. And then there's a negation of the atheism and there's this constant dialectic of movement. That's to say, it's not this, Yeah, it's not that, yeah. it's not this. Yeah. That's necessary as part of building the picture. That's it. And that movement has always been within theology, that dialectical movement. So yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that's um, once again, yeah. If you, if you have any questions, go to Peter. He's, he's the guy, he's, he's, got lots of, he's got lots of work on it. So just to kind of finish up, because I'm sure you've got, Various things More to do on your on your quarantine on your uh, quarantine <laughs> time there. It sounds like your journey has gone from beginning with the gateway drug question, which I think everybody has asked. So sorry, anti drug people, but you've all taken the gateway drug <laughs> when you've said, What is this thing of being human? Life has yeah. then led you through into the doubt, the questioning, the eventual embrace of the things that can't be known the things that are inherently absurd and don't make sense and you've exposed the fact that they don't make sense it sounds like the work you do is put together uh, almost liturgical structures or different events yeah practical outcomes yeah yeah. practical ways to help people move through that journey because it sounds like it's it, it has to be like you're saying a conversion experience is something that you have to experience. You can't just you can't just say, "Oh, I think this, and now yeah. it's changed." Intellectually, it doesn't work. It's got to yeah. be an experience. It ha- yeah, yeah, everything else yes. has to change as, as a result. Yeah. So, I'll, I'll I'll ask this this one question. As, so, as the last question, <laughs> as to fin- to finish off when when you say when because you're leading people through this this journey with your different um, uh, things that you provide, 
is this journey into the doubt and then into the eventual acceptance of the unknowable, is it, nece- is it necessary for people? Is it, what would you say to that? Yeah, great. Yeah, that's, that's all fantastic. And actually, I love the way you articulated kind of what I'm trying to do, which is it's the idea that it's not that this is a purely intellectual journey. I think to some extent, you know, thinking can really help, but it's a, it's a journey that primarily requires what Tilly would call courage. And uh, Soren Kierkegaard says the same thing. This is about a courageous event. And what's the courage? The courage is to go, we have doubts and brokenness and unknown. There's the trauma, the traumas that happen to people and there's the trauma that is people. Uh, The trauma that is life and we all have that. We all have doubts and unknowing, we all have struggles and we want to try to avoid that truth. We want to press it down, we want to avoid it. And of course we do, because we wouldn't be able to function otherwise most of the time, right? It's completely Mm -hmm. normal. But we need deserts in the oasis of our lives, quiet spaces, dark, like dry spaces where we can encounter the brokenness, the the sorrow, the sadness, the doubts, where we we can face those and wrestle with them and make peace with them. And my work is about helping to create environments where that that journey is possible. Now, two things I want to mention in relation to that. One is, this is not something that I'm saying that you impose on someone. It's like already within people. For, 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 For Tillich, for example, fundamentalism is not certainty. Right, everyone is certain about what they believe at some point in the past. Right, when you're a kid, you believe everything your parents yeah. say or whatever. The, the fundamentalism begins whenever you start to question your beliefs or someone else does, and you've got a choice. Either you go, "Oh yeah, that's an interesting question. Let's see where the thread goes," or you close your ears and you say, "I'm not listening. I'm not listening." Right, and yeah. fundamentalism and that's is fundamental. That's fundamentalism. So it's not it's not certainty. It's repressed uncertainty. Right. So so we've got all of this stuff. We do bringing it to the surface and, and my work is about helping people to, to do that and not telling this because you can never know this in advance. This is why it's courageous. You never know <laughs> you never know that the death will lead to light life. You never know that the darkness right. will lead to light. You never know that if you have to look at the pain of that broken relationship, that person that you'll never get back, that thing that happened. You, in advance you can't know for sure that if you go into that darkness you'll find the light. So, so it's always courageous. And my job is to create structures that help you do that. And then I'm going to say one thing. There's one mm-hmm. exception. Because you were talking about, like, I think you said, does everybody have to go through this or whatever? It's like, yeah. The one exception is, is there are some people who suffer from something different. Uh, and it's called psychosis in the technical term, but it's, they suffer from the tyranny of certainty. So there's somebody who, so somebody who's neurotic, has questioning. They're always asking, should I be doing this job? What am I doing with my life? Do I want to be with this person? And, and, and helping them find a way to mobilize those questions in a productive way is my work, right? To weaponize them for change because otherwise they become damaging, right? But for someone who suffers from the tyranny of certainty, uh, questioning is actually quite damaging. So there are, but, so, so you have to do something slightly different. So there are some people for whom this journey uh, is very, very difficult. But so, but I, I don't want to say it, it's fair, but for the majority of people, uh, in opening up to this doubt, complexity and ambiguity um, is the path to healing and transformation and mm. as i say there are there's there's a small number of people where you have to do something slightly different but that's for another time what's the alternative what if what because it's either... it sounds like there's that heartache that you know sorrow that 
Dark Knight of the Soul occurs in everyone. So, like Conrad's saying, like, if you don't go into it, what's the alternative? If you don't embrace it and and explore it, what do you th- what do you fear the alternative is? Like, is this the better of a two alternative yeah. or not? That's a good that's a good question. It's like yeah, the alternative. If you cannot carry your lack you will get someone else to carry it. Right. Externalize the right. suffering. You'll externalize the suffering, you'll put on, and you create scapegoats, you create... So in other words, you either have to make space for the darkness or the darkness will overcome you and it will it will come out in horrible ways. And here, I'll tell you something really depressing. I, I don't know if this is completely true, but I think it's depressing, is that, is that the depressing thing is if you completely de- deny the brokenness that you've got in your life and the darkness and the difficulties, if you completely push that down and completely do not look at it, actually, you might be able to live an okay life, but someone else will suffer. Your kids will mm. suffer. Your partner will suffer. Your friends will suffer. Yeah. So it's like that, that yeah. adds an ethical dimension so you'll to be me. okay. You'll be relationships okay. around yeah. you will be horrible. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's kind of like, to, to be honest, the person who's maybe taking really hard drugs. And they go like, yeah, it's a, they're escaping through it and they feel great, but it's damaging everybody else. So if you push it down, yeah, you'll die of a heart attack, but you'll hurt the people around you. So there's an ethical, there's a courageous dimension and there's an ethical dimension. But, but, what, mm. but the good news is you go into it and you will find that there is better ways to relate to people, better ways to relate to yourself, better ways to engage with the world. When you go into the darkness, you will find the light. And so biblically, is that the the cross that we carry is to pick up your cross because someone else will be nailed to it if you don't. Exactly. If you want, if you want to put Christianity into a nutshell, it's this, right? We all want to be like God. We all want to escape the lack. So traditionally, God is the one who lacks the lack, the one who's whole and complete. So we all want yeah. to be like God. We all want to be whole and complete and in whatever way. So we identify with God, but in Christianity, you identify with a God who becomes fully human and then experiences self 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 alienation mm-hmm. so you 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 try to escape your humanity by symbolically identifying with god and then you find yeah. that that then brings you back <laughs> to <laughs> <embracing> <laughs> yeah. subjectivity um, yeah. that for me, yeah. yeah that's it and that for me that's the that's the liturgical act is you go to church and you think that the liturgy it represents god you know all these songs about everything going to work out but the liturgy shouldn't do that the liturgy should help through its art and its music and its speaking to bring you into that broken humanity and there you will find salvation. Right. What a what a spot oh, to end. Yes, that was. <laughs> I actually had a few. Yeah, yeah. Good. I actually was like, man, it's so obvious. How did I miss that? It's <laughs> yeah. the center of the Bible. And we've been listening to this guy for years. <laughs> oh, no, how did I miss that? So, well, hopefully, hopefully you enjoy that, viewers. Yeah. There. Thanks, thanks for watching. Thanks um, for your time, Peter. It's, oh, Peter, that's where wonderful. Can catch and yeah. learn more about you. Oh, how do people do that? Well, you know, there's a lot of yeah. free stuff out there. Just go on to YouTube. There's hundreds of hours of material. And I have a website, peterrollins.com, where you'll find lots of material. So lots of stuff out there. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Thanks for taking the time. It's been awesome to, to catch up with you and chat with you and talk about some of your ideas and your journey through that. Thanks, heaps. Thank you. Great Very to see generous. you virtually. Hopefully one day we'll be able to uh, meet in person, have a drink. Mate, you come to Melbourne, we'll hang. Bye-bye. Thanks, heaps. Now, if you listen to some of that, some of that, all the philosophical terminology, name dropping, the philosophers, I don't really know, you know, who they are exactly. I've heard them of by name. I've never read them. So it might be a little bit overwhelming at first, but 
but I'll say stick with it. Keep, yeah. I don't know, like even towards the end there, I just had just a whole new perspective. Yeah. And I'm like, man, I didn't, how did I not think of that? And you just yeah. have to keep listening to it and keep uh, persisting with it because it is, I don't know, it's difficult. Like hit Kierkegaard, bloody Hegel, yeah. all these guys, I yeah. don't know. He's yeah. Peter Rollins is like our ticket. He's our gateway drug into philosophy <laughs> yeah. uh, because, I mean, the, all those books behind him, yeah. I've, couldn't yeah. read him. Yeah. Can't. We're relying on him to read it and articulate it to us. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So yeah. then next Friday night, we'll do a Friday night live and we'll talk about, we'll distill some of his ideas, probably around certainty and doubt. Like yeah. doubt is salvation or something like yeah, that. Yeah. If, if you've got a clickbait idea, let us know. So thanks for joining us on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, we, and we on will, Instagram Live. And on Instagram Live. <laughs> Hopefully, if you agree or disagree with what he's saying, really doesn't matter. Yeah. Does it give you a new perspective? If the answer is yes, yeah. we've done our job. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. See you. Catch you next time.